Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm still interested in mythology, photography, riding to hounds, in fact, in everything. But at 19, my thoughts turned to flying, and I decided to do it seriously. I was convinced that aviation was a profession with a future, and determined to earn my living and make my career a paying proposition. Welcome to the Damcasters, brought to you in association with the Pima Air and Space Museum. I'm your host, Matt Bowen. Pauline Gower is best remembered today as the intrepid commander of the women's section of the Air Transport Auxiliary during the Second World War. But there is much more to Gower than those fateful six years. Overcoming childhood illness, Gower would go on to an incredible aviation career, publish two volumes of poetry and capped it all with the foundation of the women's section of the ATA, ensuring her pilots received equal pay for equal work in the dangerous delivery of high-performance aircraft. Under her leadership, women flew every type of RAF aircraft, ensuring a steady supply of new and replacement aircraft to frontline and training units. Alison Hill is a poet and author of the new biography of Pauline Gower, which is a heartfelt look at this remarkable woman and the remarkable women that she surrounded herself with. Our conversation is going to focus on Pauline's life before the ATA, but when I'm speaking with a poet, about a poet, I had to ask Alison to start with, what drew her to Pauline Gower? Was it the poet or the pilot? I think it was very much both. Um, and a little story of how I came across Pauline Gower. Um, of all places, in Hampton Court Emporium, which is a grand title for a very dusty, overflowing shop full of vintage clothes, assorted glassware, ornaments from every decade. And on one of my visits, a pristine copy of Spitfire Women by Giles Whittle in the very small section of secondhand books. And I thought, wow, I mean, my, my eye was drawn to the cover, first of all, the pilots on the front. And I didn't really know that women had flown spitflies in the Second World War, let alone, as I found out, tiger moths, mosquitoes, hurricanes, wellingtons, and many more types. 
So I soon just, I bought the book, of course, you know, I wasn't going to leave the shop without it. And I soon discovered a wealth of stories. You've, you've got to throw Typhoons, typhoons and Tempests tempest. into your list because yeah. they're, 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 they're my favourites. Yeah. yeah, Everything. So <laughs> I bought the book and I was really lucky and I sort of lucky enough to meet some of the women in the pages. So that was fascinating. Um, so, yeah, I, I just decided it was, Giles Wickler's book is a really, really great um, overview of the story, of the pilots, of the women, of the time, and he's a journalist, so he writes in it in a very succinct way. But I just thought, reading through, I thought there's so many stories here that need uh, perhaps another way of reaching people. And so I decided to write a poetry collection, as you do, sort of, and try and put as many women mm. in their stories into this poetry collection as I could. Um, so that resulted in Sisters and Spitfires. And I was really pleased to find that some of the pilots, as well as, you know, flying these amazing array of planes throughout the war actually wrote themselves as well. At least, at least three or four of them wrote poetry and Pauline was one of them. So I thought this is, this is this is a synergy here really. Um, and I was lucky enough to um, actually publish, republish some of her poems in a book before this one called 50 Ways to Fly. So I feel like her work is, is reaching new audiences. I've read some of her poems in schools and next to spitfires and hurricanes. And I just feel like her words are sort of resonating down the decades and are reaching new audiences like that. So. Because before I read your book, I had no idea about the poetry. I just knew Pauline Gower, head of women's section 88. Mm-hmm. That, that was, that was, and, and dying tragic, tragically young, of course. Um, but delving into that, there's just so many facets to her, which we're going to have a, a little chat yeah. about, but that was really, really interesting that this, this woman who's probably, main um legacy is is that ata element that people don't see the artist beyond the leader which tends to happen sometimes really with historical figures really good way of putting it she's really creative in lots of ways i think writing was just one of the forms but she um composed some of her poems while waiting to take people up for flights so you know Hmm. (laughs) well we're gonna get to that bit because we have to start at the beginning because her life just the, all the way through is just utterly fascinating. But who were her people? Where were where was she from? She was born in um, Tunbridge Wells. She was born on twenty second of July, nineteen ten, at Sandown Court in Tunbridge Wells in Kent. She was the second daughter of parents Sir Robert and Lady Dorothy Gower. So clearly, she was from a fairly wealthy middle class background. But she was determined from the outset when she'd left school. She was determined to make her way, her, her living, her sorry, a way of earning her own living through the thing she loved best, which was flying, which was quite unusual then. She could have just sort of sat back on her wealth and uh, decided she wasn't really going to do that, but that's what she did. And she followed her ambitions and made that happen. So her father, Sir Robert Gow, was quite a character. He was equally ambitious in the field of politics and had some strong causes to his name. He was known as the Dogs MP for his concern for animal welfare and was chair of the RSPCA for many years. He was also keen that both his daughters had a good education, which was fairly unusual for the time. We'll come on to that a little later. But his wife, Dorothy Gower, um, she was a very loyal wife and she undertook lots of um, engagements alongside him. She opened dog shows and uh, other other interesting um, engagements. Um, but she seemed to enjoy this and um, they, they appear in lots of press photographs alongside each other. And later, some of that work um, would fall to Pauline. I've just sort of Googled Robert Gow because I did this the other day. It, it's quite funny that the majority, you know, it's father of Pauline and then a little bit about the animal activism and, and that's about it. But he he was a, a very sort of, we'd call him a crusading MP, 
nowadays, wouldn't he? He he very much would pin his mask to, to various causes on where you mentioned animal welfare and things. The thing I found interesting as well was the the work that you know the ladies of the family had had to do. They they were very much front and centre in his activities as an MP. He was involving the whole family, wasn't he? He was. He was also a real collector of um, scrapbooks. He's He bequeathed 50 mm. scrapbooks. Um, these are thick books to Tunbridge Wells Library. So an excellent source of information and research. Um, I visited them twice, and I think I went through most of them. And now they're proudly, they have some new, lovely new archive boxes that have been moved from library to library. Um, very much sort of pride of place in the library. But he collected everything in the press. Pauline, obviously, was a focal point. She was in the press a lot through all her um, aviation career. And, and then her, her writing as well appeared in the press. But he, he collated all these into scrapbooks. Um, and I, I detail some of that in the book, 50 of them. And his, um, his older mm. daughter, Dorothy, also called Dorothy, um, when she married, he kept the serviette from her wedding. And it was folded into the, into the book. So I took it out and read it. And then I carefully folded it back along the folds he had used. Um, so he really, he had a sort of, pre- he wanted to preserve history as well, I think. And his daughter was the same. She also kept scrapbooks. So there's a family tradition, I think, of, of keeping memories. It's the thing a proud dad yeah. would do, isn't it? Keeping, keeping all the bits and pieces for his daughter. Daughters. Um, so what sort of child was, was Pauline? So she's growing up in quite a, an interesting house with sort of forthright views, left, right and centre. So what, what, what sort of girl was she? I think she was a very forthright girl as well. Um, she went to Beechwood Sacred Heart Convent School in Tunbridge Wells, just up the road, but she was a boarder. I think that was probably the tradition, really, which I think she enjoyed. Um, she was there for a good um, seven, eight years. And many former pupils, I was lucky enough to to read about what some of her and sort of fellow peers had written about. And they all, um, I think she was a bit on a bit of a pinnacle, really. Um, she was called a glittering figure by one one former school friend. Um, and I just read a little bit about what one of them had said, actually. Um, successfully academically musical, very good at games. She was popular with the schoolmates and the nuns, not just because of her talents and amusing ways, but because she was even-tempered. And this friend said, I can't reflect her being unfair or unkind to a junior. She could always be relied on to organise treasure hunts in the school grounds, charades or surprise concerts, and her singing Lancashire songs accompanying herself on the ukulele in ribbons flying as she danced around is still a jolly memory. (laughs) She also, uh, which I was really intrigued, um, she also climbed climbed every tree in the grounds and climbed out to most of the dormitory windows. And I put that into a poem about Pauline. Um, I went to visit the school a couple of times and these dormitory windows, they're on, I think, the second floor. It's an old crumbling building. And I think most of the sort of um, window ledges were crumbling when I was there. So I imagine her sort of climbing along window ledges and climbing down and just reaching for the sky. But also there's a real sense of adventure up there, I think, in her. Oh, yeah. She... All, all those, all those stories that you you have from her school days, she seems like she was irre, irrepressible. It's the word that just kept sort of popping to my head. She's she's always was trying to push things on, but it wasn't all happy times, was it? She she was she got terribly. She only died at the age of seventeen. Um, she had a very serious brush for death. She was in out of school infirmary uh, with an ongoing and prolonged ear infection which turned out to be uh, very severe and very nearly escalated to, to death. She was overnight um, in the hospital and 
the nuns and the girls were, were lighting candles and praying for her. And there was a very strong fear that she was not going to make it through the night. Um, but she did. And I think strength of character and strength of her will, um, I think by the second day she was up demanding chicken soup or at least eating chicken soup. So she'd come through something very serious and, and very nearly died. And I think it slightly altered her perception. I think she thought now she was going to do as much as she could. Um, that's sort of my feeling from what she then went on to do. And I think she thought, you know, she'd she'd come through sort of a very serious night and operation and she'd made it and she was, she was going to go for it. So, yeah. So flying enters her life around about this time. So post stillness, isn't it? And what what do you think drew her to that? Was it this this desire of the the, the brush from death to just literally grab the most exciting thing that she could, and, and that was? I flight. think it is. Um, I'm going to read a couple of bits that sort of say in her own words um, why she chose flying. She she could have chosen lots of different things. As she said, I'm still interested in mythology, photography, riding to hounds, in fact, in everything. But at 19, my thoughts turned to flying, and I decided to do it seriously. I was convinced that aviation was a profession with a future and determined to earn my living and make my career a paying proposition. So that was that determined streak in her, I think. Yeah, it's that line there, the paying proposition. It wasn't just joining the flying set, which about this time was... Yeah, the one of one of the in things, wasn't it? The the, the Brooklyn's crowd and, and all of them. But it was it was to make it her own career out of it. Um, Very much so. I mean, really, her parents probably expected her to do a London season, which she did. And she said in her own words that she was bored to tears. Um, she, I think, she went to Paris briefly. She did the London season. Was probably expected to find a suitable husband and eventually settle down and provide some grandchildren. But she wanted to do more with that. She'd had that brush with death. And um, so she told her parents, and I imagine this, I think I wrote it in a poem, but I did, re- I did um, read it in one of her own sort of pieces of writing that she told them over the breakfast table she was going to learn to fly. And I imagine her father, or I think it was recounted, that he just shook his newspaper and um, carried on reading. And her mother might have quietly put her teaspoon down, sort of waiting for the reaction. And I think her, her father said, well, I'm not going to pay for you to break your neck. Um, people were going to support her, and so she decided that she was going. To, she was going to fly, and she gave violin lessons. I mentioned she's very good at music, so she said she'd give violin lessons to unsuspecting pupils and earn money for flying lessons that way, which she did. Um, so she paid, she paid for initial uh, flying lessons. So Stag Lane was the place to learn to fly, and that's that's where Pauline went. It's one of those places that if I could go back, I'd love to just sit and watch because the stories about Stag Lane as just this social world of an airfield are fantastic. And, and you paint a really vivid picture of it as well. What what, what happens when Pauline is yeah, pounced upon enough unsuspecting students with her violin <laughs> to, to, to actually get involved there? Well, she... Um... She knew that she wanted to learn to fly and she found um, Stag Lane, North London. And it was, like you say, a very famous um, place. It launched many a career and many a, a plane. Um, and of course, she met two people that were, one in particular that was really to change her life. She met Dorothy Spicer and she met Amy Johnson. Both, the three of them were sort of reaching the highs of what they were going to do. Very young, at a very young age. Um, they were going to break records. They were going to achieve all these licenses between them and Amy Johnson was going to go from sort of um, whole typist pool to, to flying to Australia solo. Um, 
really a brilliant idea. <laughs> Everyone's career path. Um, so they, they met there and they became great friends. Um, there might have been some sort of idea that they weren't, you know, competitive, but from everything I read, they were very good friends and very supportive of each other. And Pauline and Dorothy in particular, they decided very early on in sort of early um, way of, you know, good working relations. They decided that one was going to concentrate on, on being the pilot and Dorothy would, you know, hone her skills um, and a very natural talent as an engineer. So they, they, you know, they, they focused on their, their talents. They didn't overlap. So they were just, they weren't competing with each other. And, and together they set up, um, as I'll come on to later, um, and they, they were a, a formidable team together. Yeah, Dorothy Spicer seems as remarkable a lady as, as Pauline at the same time, isn't it? it, it she's, she's the mechanic who is always there, always pushing, getting all, all of her all of her chits as well, which must have, as 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 you can, must must have made the the gentleman she was going through those courses with very raised an eyebrow, perhaps. Um, but what, what sort of flying were they getting up to? Because it it was. It was not uneventful, if one is to use it. Not at all, no. Um, And their memoir, which they wrote together, um, goes into great detail about all the many near misses. I mean, I think it was a lot of chance and circumstance their career to start with, you know, winging a prayer, literally. Um, But Dorothy was very skilled, and Pauline trusted her that she would keep their plane flying. So every night and all those sort of the summers they spent together, the air circuses, you know, Dorothy would be hard at work checking the plane every night to make sure it was safe. Um, and Pauline would be flinging her logbooks and, and preparing for the day ahead. But they, they made such a good team, I think, because they were both, I think, ambitious without sort of sensing that were being ambitious. But they were, they were really making strides. I mean, Dorothy broke down barriers and made huge strides for women in, in the field of, you know, aeronautical engineering. And Pauline did the same, and she was a pioneering pilot. So together, I think they they were they did break break down barriers, and they were in the press, and there was a lot of profile, and and um, all eyes were upon them really at that time. What were the the circuses that they flew in? Because it's one of those things that you, you sort of hear about co- cobbles flying circus and things like that. And of course, Monty Python ripped off the name um, many many years later for a very different thing. But what were these circuses that Pauline and Dorothy got involved in? Well, I think this was the fun part of the research. You know, these are circuses that the golden era of aviation, the 1930s, you know, a time that will never come again because we've got far too many health and safety roles for it to happen for a start. And we've, you know, so many different advances in aviation and everything else. So that particular time, you know, not not so far after the first flights and sort of some amazing stunts. And, you know, I read about people being pretending to be human planes in their exhibitions and the sort of their... Um, um, sort of, you know, exploits in the sky, really. Um, so they joined Campbell Black's Air Circus. They spent a season with the Crimson Fleet and another season with the British Hospitals Pageant, which involved, you know, one summer or one two months out of the year, they might fly across England 200 towns to give displays. And these were long hours, long days. And as I said, that, you know, um, they would be looking after the plane at night. But I imagine they had huge amounts of fun doing this. You know, they were young. They were like daredevils in a way and they were just having fun and they were two women usually in a crowd of men um I've seen photos and photos in the book the barnstormers and there's a group of men really and there's Pauline and Dorothy looking like they're having as much fun as the whole group really um they never really there were never too many accounts of huge amounts of sexism I think obviously they were they were doing something different they were very much in a man's world but 
they were proving themselves in that man's world, I think. So I think they were just, wasn't wasn't overtly um, any too, too bad in that way. I was doing a bit of Googling earlier Ooh. and I realized I forgot one important question when I saw a picture of Pauline and Dorothy and their dog. Ah, yeah. Because it is very much the third one in this group. Where did the dog come from? Very, very well spotted. Um, well, I think Pauline had the same love of animals as her father. And she this always, always seemed to be a little dog in the photographs that I, when I was looking. Um, <laughs> so Wendy was the dog that um, she had for a few years and she flew 5,000 miles with him, if you can imagine that. And I think um, she's a little um, Yorkshire Terrier, I think, and her hair must have been quite blown by, you know, the open cockpits. But, you know, she was, she was in lots of... Um, fair amount of flights so yes and i think she flew um flew around the country with them wendy's a good name so the, besides the the circuses they're they're honing a very early sort of form of air taxi business and um how did they get on because it's very unusual to, for it to be a, a woman-led company let alone a woman-led early airline completely i mean they were unique this is another first in their lives between them they set up um at Air trips limited um mm-hmm. and they had advertising and then sort of they just decided they were going to set up in a field um that was the first one of the first summers and i think they had a sign saying flights turn left here you know it was, it was very basic and they sat in this field and waited and eventually word got around that you could go up for a few shillings or the actual price and you know these women will take you up um and then a couple of summers were in north in norfolk in hunstanton Probably their happiest summers, I think. They called it Happy Hunstanton. And um, I was going to come to this point at the end of our chat, but um, I was lucky enough last year to meet somebody who'd been up with them. Oh, wow. So he's in his mid-90s, um, and they inspired him to join the RAF and become a pilot. So as soon as this is all connections through the RAF news, they'd done a preview of the mm. book, and he'd, he'd, you know, it sparked memories. And so I was, you know, I thought I'm not going to meet many people that have met Pauline and Dorothy. So I went to visit him in Norfolk. It was a lovely afternoon with all his memories and bits of Spitfire all around his house <laughs> and lots of memorabilia. And I think, you know, he enjoyed our afternoon in the meeting. I gave him signed copies of the book. But, oh, he said, yes, these two young girls just, just turn up in the field. And we, we knew they were coming and we used to run up to the fields and be taken up with them. And yeah, they just took up 33,000 passengers over those summers. Um, usually sometimes just for a short hop, you know, five minutes up in the air. Again, this is all of the time, isn't it? That wouldn't, wouldn't happen now. There'd be far too much charting of the airways. But yeah, they did that. And we must remember that it's, it's an entirely different environment. You know, for, for us, it's holiday, isn't it? You go to the airport, you get squidged onto a, an aluminium tube and... Yeah. <laughs> People try to make as much money out of you as possible, and that's it. But to to go up in an aeroplane in the 1930s was just the most remarkable opportunity for for anyone. And it, it's you know you, you said that the, the chap that you spoke to was said these these ladies showed up and, and and off they went. And it's it's a familiar story for people with their first flights. It was usually a chance encounter where somebody was able to seize an opportunity or blag their way into into the, the good graces of the pilot. Indeed, and there are lots of them. Um, I put lots of details of those flights in the book. One particular one was that Pauline found lots of, um, she'd taken up 
clearly uh, someone a Catholic um, because they'd left lots of little relics around the um, the plane afterwards and a and a rosary um, probably because they were hoped they'd get down in one piece so they'd left off these <laughs> and she just thought that was really funny having to collect all this at the end of the flight so. She was, I mean, I think she used her writer's eye to put all that detail into her book. And I think that it, she just thought that was hugely, a sense of fun in there as well. But she was giving these people experiences, but she was getting some interesting human interactions along the way. We're going to talk about her writing in a second, but yeah. I suppose we have to ask the question, what did her father make of all of this? As, you know, a, a, a stern, like, source of the Edwardian age, you know, his daughter running an airline, gallivanting off around the country. What did the MP think of his daughter's actions? Well, I think um, it, it showed in Pauline's character that she was very good at diplomacy and, and slowly and quietly getting her own way because that's what she did. Um, and also you <laughs> mentioned earlier him being proud is what you do with daughters. You know, he, he was proud of her. So obviously he put up a front to start with and, um, you know, wasn't going to help her. But then by her 21st birthday, he bought her a plane, a second-hand Spartan. I think his reasoning was probably that, you know, he'd, he'd rather she was doing it safely um, with sort of a decent plane. I think he knew that probably that she was probably had the strength of character that he did and went for a cause. And I think he knew that she was she was going to become a pilot or whatever. Um, so he might as well support her. And then it wasn't so long, I think, before he was really proud of her and all the cuttings in his scrapbook showed that pride. For sure. As, as the father of the daughter, I still have boxes of artwork and school reports and exactly. pictures and things. You, you keep, you keep, these you keep everything, yeah. We're going to take a quick break so that we can get the latest from the Pima Air and Space Museum with Director of Collections, Andrew Bowley. Here at the Pima Air and Space Museum with our Douglas A-20G Havoc. A-20 Havoc was an attack aircraft light bomber of World War II. Originally built and designed with a glass nose with a bombardier, in the Pacific Theater, like B-25s, Pappy Gunn came up with this idea of manning these aircraft with solid noses and a bunch of machine guns for doing strafing attacks on Japanese airfields and attacking Japanese shipping. This aircraft is an actual combat veteran. It flew with the 89th Bomb Squadron in New Guinea uh, on a mission. Uh, I think bombing WIWAC, it was damaged and made an emergency landing in a swamp in New Guinea. The crew was recovered and the aircraft sat there pretty much forever until it was found in the 80s. And in the early 90s, it was recovered by the Royal Australian Air Force. This A-20 with another one that they had, they restored the one Helen Pelican, which was another combat veteran from the Pacific. They used a lot of the parts from this aircraft for that aircraft. Then actually went to a civilian owner, and then we ended up buying from that civilian owner and finished up the restoration, put it on display here. It's a unique aircraft in the fact there's only about four, if I recall, A-20 Havocs anywhere on display in the world, with one in a private collection, one at the Air Force Museum, one here, and one in a private collection in Russia. But uh, I'd say it's always been one of my favorite aircraft, I think, just because of the lack of them as survivors and also just seeing a lot of those cool photos from world war ii where you see these a-20s coming in low over a ball bombing japanese cruisers and and transports and you know they're like literally flying right like at mass height over these ships um so i just always found it to be a pretty cool airplane to learn more about what is on display and what events are coming up at the pima air and space museum in tucson arizona 
please do check out their website at www.pimaair.org. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Like we were saying before, it, it was the Pauline as a sort of artist, as, as writer, which I, I knew nothing about and was enthralled to to hear about, you know, piffling poems for pilots and, and, and her book and things. What were the reactions to the collections? Because you, you sort of include a few in, in your book along with your own poetry. That's, I, I, I sort of love that you sort of have that connection there. But what was the reaction when this daughter of an MP who was gallivanting around the country in an airplane published a collection of poems. I think there was a fairly amused reaction, possibly, but mostly they were very well received. Um, she'd made her name as for herself already. And then to have this added interest that she was writing poems and, you know, it was detailed that she was writing them while waiting to take up passengers. And, and once she wrote an overly long poem and Dorothy, who probably wasn't so much into poetry, said, I really quite like it. If you stop that poem now, I think you know. If it end at line six, that would be that would be great. Um, so, you know, there's a little backstory that where she was composing her poems. Um, I tried to to follow her suit actually and try and uh, write a poem while I was being taken up in a small plane. And as soon as I realised that you know I was going to be airsick and couldn't even write anything, I decided. <laughs> but you know, I admire her for for doing that in between all that sort of frantic, sort of flying life that she had. So. So yes, um, they were, were were received, and Amy Johnson said very good things about it. She offered a review of her envied friend's acknowledged achievements, saying that although she the exhilaration of flying often made her want to break into song, she didn't have Pauline's talent with the written word. And she reminded readers of the Tunbridge Wells advertiser that her friend enjoyed a successful strategic partnership. Pauline flies and composes poems, while Dorothy looks after the engine in the machine. I think she's putting that very succinctly of how that punishment works. Looking back at it over the, the course of 80 years and with a poet's eye and there's someone with a tin ear for these sorts of things, do they, do they hold up? I, I don't know if that's the right question to ask, but yeah, for, for, for someone who's, who looks at these things probably a little bit more critically than say I, I would and just think, Oh, that that's lovely and turn the page the sort of way she would compose and, and, and phrase. What's what's your poet's sensibilities say about them? So it's a really interesting question. And, and when I knew that she wrote poetry, when I managed to get hold of piffling poems for pilots, um, I was a little bit wary. I thought, what am I going to think of them? You know, because like you say, there's this 80-year gap and 
poetry is, is so much different now and how we perceive it, how we write it, how we, you know, read it aloud. Um, so I think they stand the test of time. They're very much of their time, the way they're written. Um, some people might say that they're almost light verse. And I don't think Pauline herself took them extremely seriously. I think she thought she was writing to entertain, really. Um, so they're very accessible. And they have that, that important sense of humour that I think marks her her life and her career. So they're full of humour. And I've also um, discovered there's a depth to them. There's a flickering subtlety of light and shade, but mostly there's humour. Yes, it, it, the, the, the few you have in the, the book, I, I, I don't know, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Did, yeah. did you have a favourite you wanted to, to share or... Well, I mean, there's one, there's one I did put in, in, in the chapter about her, her poems, um, so I could yeah. share that one. And that would be that would be that would be lovely. Like, like I said, yeah, yeah. It, it might be might be wasted on me, but I'm sure our list our listener is, is far more discerning person than, than I am when it comes. Well, I to think this this really shows their sense of humour. Mm. So it's called the Stranger Pilot. From some far continent he came to teach us how to fly. We'd not even heard his name from whence he came or why. He told us of all the things he'd done at least a hundred times, and all about the cups he'd won in distant foreign climes. From tales he told we had to grant, he was no also ran. With wonder we exclaimed, you can't. But he replied, I can. It was a joy to tease and bait that pilot of renown, and each in turn would lie in wait and try to do him down. One day we caught him by the sea, that was the last of him. Demortuous, well, R.I.P., the blighter couldn't swim. <laughs> she, yeah, she, she's clearly having a lot of fun she is. With, with her and observations. I think, I think she, she, yeah. it was it was that. It's a sense of fun and a little bit of getting at the the pilot. Obviously, thought he was a a wizard pilot. To use a, another term mm. from the the time. You clearly spent a lot of time with with her work and things. How, how did it inspire you in your in your own works when when you were writing about? About the women and, and, and what sort of moved you after spending a lot of time with Pauline's poetry? I think possibly that um, she didn't go on to write more, really. Mm. There were sort of poems of a young woman. Um, as I said, they were amusing, they're light. But I bet you really just thought this, but she might have um, gone on to write some deeper poems. She might have gone on to write all sorts of things. But um, I think... They're of their time, but they're of her time as well. Mm. Yeah, and it was also just just to add, it was a, it was a, quite mm. an honour to republish them and to have the permission of her son to to put them in this book as well, because I think it's just giving them that extra lease of life, really. Very much so, and it, it it's remembering just how young she was through throughout all the all the things that she she crammed in. But um, the the other the other thing you you mentioned earlier was her sort of memoir of her and Dorothy's adventures, Women with Wings. Um, how did that book differ from the poetry? Because that's very much more sort of nuts and bolts. What we're getting up to, sort of thing. It really is, what, yeah. And yeah. I was delighted. It's a very rare book now. I was really delighted to get my hands on a copy because until I read that book, I really didn't have Pauline's voice. I don't think. Mm. Um, I tried to find a copy online, and I was very pleased when I. A friend, uh, a researcher who's now become a friend, lent me a copy, and she 
bubble wrapped it beautifully. I was thinking this this book is, I think it might have been between lockdowns and it was coming at Christmas time with the post. I remember the post had all stacked up. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I opened my door and it was on the doorstep. And, you know, when I unwrapped this bubble wrap and this time and this sort of history, um, her voice really shines through. So it was a memoir of their time um, flying together, their six summers. And it's the only time that Pauline and Dorothy actually nearly fell out because they couldn't decide who was going to write the main part of the book and who was going to top it, tail it with a forward and afterward. And I'm going to ask you now, Matt, who do you think won? I'm guessing it was Pauline. Yeah, she did. Mm. She decided that, yes, and determination won that one. But they didn't fall out for long because Pauline did um, Pauline did get to write the main part and, and um, Dorothy Spicer did sort of write the, the introduction and, and the afterward. But she writes with lots of energy. She's very humorous. And it's so it details their their time together, their their scrapes and their um their adventures. But it also includes some of her writings from journals. She wrote for the Women's Engineering Society and lots of other aviation or um, journals. And she was um she was encouraging really women to fly and young girls to consider careers in, in the aviation. Bearing in mind it was still in the early times of women actually getting into aviation. So she was a huge advocate for women in that way. And so the book's informative, but it's also very entertaining. And I just, if I could just read a short passage, she, she almost mm. looked ahead to her, her own place in aviation history. And this sort of rather poignant, but very appalling um, paragraph. In 20 or 30 years' time, I can picture myself being looked upon in very much the same light as one now regards the retired captain of a windjammer. I should be invited to aeronautical dinners as a sort of curiosity young pilots employed in making rocket-like ascents from Hyde Park with some up-to-date contraption which can tr- transport a hundred businessmen to Paris in half an hour, will listen and laugh as I make my la- little speech about the good old days at Stag Lane and Croydon. Uh, to be able to get to Paris in a half an hour. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, 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 that's very moving. And I, because she didn't get that opportunity, exactly. Um, yeah, and it would have it would have been amazing. It would have been amazing to 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 have seen her hold court as she undoubtedly would have had had she had that opportunity. The thing that really surprised me about this book, yeah, uh, you, you mentioned earlier that Amy, Amy Johnson wrote, wrote the forward, and, and uh, you you cover in the book that lots of people have tried to make it out as a rivalry, but it was it was a friendship, which is clearly from the forward. But the, um, how should we put this, prickly editor of Aeroplane. Oh, yes. C.G. Gray actually wrote a good review. I, I, I believe this is the only time I've ever heard of Gray writing a positive review of something. He did. I mean, I put some of his less um, favorable comments in the book as well, which readers can discover. <laughs> but he did. He wrote that Pauline's keen sense of humor cuts across all her 18 bursts of facile rhyme. The meter runs as almost as evenly as an aero engine, and the author, the authoress, is to be recommended for avoiding the highbrow. He, he goes on to say that the booklet was dedicated to a friend and partner, Miss Dorothy Spicer, which will appeal to all who knew this irrepressible pair of sportsmen. An interesting slant, and one that would probably have caused Pauline to arch at least one eyebrow. Mm. But he said good things, so that was all good. He's he's a fascinating and 
terrible character all in the same go. But that that is lovely that that he was able to recognize that as 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 well. Well, as as the world starts getting a little bit darker in in the thirties, how how are how are Pauline and Dorothy going? Does does the air trips business manage to to keep going all the way up till nineteen thirty nine? No, they finished um, sooner than that. They both had a the actual date to hand but they finished um a couple of sadnesses in both their lives and they decided that um it was time to wind it up um mm -hmm. they'd had their day and i think the last but one season had been really taking its toll on pauline's health and just generally the sort of you know it was, they were tiring tiring seasons mm -hmm. and summers and um not particularly um didn't make an awful lot of money so um i think they decided that that you know the six years had been long enough and um it was time to to do something else. And of course, then war was looming. So, yeah. yeah. We're not going to delve into the formation of the ATA and, and, and too much because we want people to, to, to read the book. But I think, I think the, the question to ask really was she, she was very aware of the political situation. I guess being the daughter of an MP, you, you, you keep a finger on the pulse, don't you? Um, how did she just use her connections to ensure that the door would eventually open for, for the women's section? Cause she, she networked like a pro, didn't she? She did. Yes. And she did it in her own style, which um, as someone has said, is stealthily or sort of um, step by step. And she knew where she was going. She knew that the end result was that she knew there was a pool of, you know, talented women pilots that could be needed and could be used. The ATA was sort of, in early ideas, and it was obviously going to be, they hadn't really considered using female pilots, so it was going to be men, but Pauline knew that, you know, th these women could be utilised and could really help. Um, and so once, you know, discussion started, she did use the sort of networking that she'd, she'd you know, the connections she'd made. Um, so she sort of almost one meeting at a time, just pushing slowly, slowly, but she got where she wanted. And she used that skill of diplomacy and um, sort of leadership in her role um throughout the sort of time as she was leading because then she you know she won equal pay for her women which after all the many firsts is something that perhaps people do not know about her and it was the first in employment history you know that women um achieved equal pay for doing the same job which is something the wasps over in the states never got was it i think i don't think so having no. just yeah, yeah that, that's it's yeah. that is it's a re remarkable thing because the danger levels exactly the same exactly. in that role, so there can't really be too too much too much argument about it. Well, just turn to the legacy now, and what what do you think Pauline's legacy is today? You know, like we were saying before, that the ATA shone bright as this incredible moment. But having spent so much time with her, what do you feel her legacy is, or should be? I think she deserves to be much better well-known, which was one of the reasons for wanting to write this new biography. Um, she was a clear leader of her time. Lots of the women who I interviewed or read, um, sort of their, their own recollections of her, said she was a natural leader. And they all sort of recount this with warmth and they really remember her as a, as a good, solid leader, but who's kind and compassionate as well and empathy, which all those sort of leadership qualities. So I think that was a legacy. I think the fact that she led those women successfully through the war, um, one in 10 of all ATA pilots died. One in 10, yes, it was. Um, 
And so she had to deal with all those sort of situations as well and just keep on leading. Um, so I think her resilience and her sort of all those qualities she showed was was a huge legacy. But the fact that, you know, she enabled those women to fly in all the planes and have the, all the experiences, which in turn then enabled them to, some of them at least, to be able to fly after the war, which in turn led some of those ATA women pilots to set up um, the British Women Pilots Association 10 years after the war. So you can see her legacy feeding down the decades and the fact that, you know, some of the ATA women set up this association, which is still going strong and which I really wanted to bring this book up to date with and share some interviews and some of the highlights and just to show her legacy in that way. So, I'm a fan. It is a wonderful, wonderful book. And the humanity that you capture there is, as, as well is, 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 is wonderful. And I guess legacy wise, what a, change that around to a more personal question what does she mean to you now well i had a portrait she her and dorothy um sat for portraits or photographs actually and they were in the national um portrait gallery and so i i bought those at the start of the, the process and um she was sort of above my desk as i wrote and I, there's this clear gaze of hers and so i think what she means is as a woman of a time of who made her time very much important to herself but also a much bigger picture and her role and her war effort and her sort of what she did for other women really I think and I think that's her legacy and I think that's the connection I felt with her when I was writing about her and and the fact that tragically her life was cut short you know after giving birth to twins and you know that's when I read that and when I discovered that I thought wow that's um, sadness it's a huge sadness but if we can bring her more into the public mind and, and memory. I think that's important too. And I think you've done that very well. I, I do. I do have one one extra thing I would say. What is your favourite Pauline Gower moments that people should hunt hunt for in the book? Now, that's a question I wasn't expecting. No, I see. I don't, always always throw one in to catch out my guests. <laughs> favorite. Favorite. I think people should look for um, a story about a swamp. <laughs> <laughs> and also, um, it's a little tie in there because in the RAF Museum, where they have a wonderful archive, um, which I was only able to access almost towards the end of the writing process because I was writing in lockdown and these places were closed. So I went and had a lovely day in the archive and found some of her own writing. And um, she wrote a short story about the swamp episode, Death in the Swamp. So if people could read that as well alongside, I think that would just be the brilliant sort of um, pulling down moment. But there were many. Fantastic. Alison, this has been a delight. I thoroughly enjoyed the book. So thank you so much for spending the time with us and uh, writing the book. Because I, like I said, I devoured it. It was just a wonderful, wonderful read. Thank you very much for letting me share her story and hopefully people will be able to find out more about Pauline as well. So thank you. Thank you. I cannot thank Alison Hill enough for joining us here on The Damcasters. I found her book really quite touching and moving as there were so many aspects of Pauline's life I had no clue about. Her life working with Dorothy Spicer before the war was something that shone a light on an era of British flying that I find utterly fascinating in that you could just go find some random people in a field with an airplane and go for a flight. How cool would that have been? 
But Pauline's book, which is out now from the History Press, is called Pauline Gower, Pioneering Leader of the Spitfire Women. And as I said, I thoroughly enjoyed it and I can highly recommend it. It is a fascinating read and Alison has done a wonderful job with the biography. I just have to thank the History Press for sending me a review copy and putting me in touch with Alison as well. It's very kind of them. As always, there'll be a link to the book from our bookshop in the description below. As usual, a little bit goes to support the podcast. And of course, the best way you can support the podcast is by liking, subscribing, doing all those sorts of things. But just give us a quick review. Whatever your podcast app of choice is, stick some stars in it, leave some notes, let me know how we're getting on, if there's anything you'd like to see. And it really does help nudging the algorithms into helping people find the podcast. Of course, you can always tell your friends because, you know, that's the easy way to get people to listen. Just tell them how great this is, despite the guy that hosts it. The guests are fantastic. And we have more fantastic guests coming up. I'd just like to take this moment as well to thank our sponsor and partner, the Pima Air and Space Museum. We're going to be having another fantastic interview with one of the people from Arizona at the beginning of May. So keep your ears peeled for that one. Of course, there's the Patreon as well, £3 a month. We're going to call it the Damn Casteers going on forward, mainly because I'm really excited about the upcoming Musketeers movie and being a Dumas nut. Why not? So if you want to join and become a Damn Casteer, check out the links in the description below. There's going to be more bits and pieces on there. We've got a new video up where I delve into my love-hate relationship with the first of the few. That's for the Patreon fans for the time being. And I think it was a lot of fun to do. Next time, we'll have another guest. And as always, we'll be back soon next week with another episode. And I do hope you'll join us. Until then, thank you, everybody, for your continued support of the pod. This is great fun. I know it's been a couple of weeks since the last episode. Bit of the black dog. But thanks for understanding and tuning in again. So... Until next time, thank you so much for listening and do take care of yourselves. The Damcasters is hosted and produced by Matt Bone and it is a Boney Abroad podcast production. To check out our other podcasts, head to boneyabroad.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.